Welcome back, farmers. This is We're All Ears, the Golden Harvest podcast mini-series airing throughout Harvest 2021. My name is Kara Hart. I'm glad you're listening in today. Last episode, we talked recommendations for creating the best 2022 soybean crop plans. This week, we're diving into the carbon market to understand what role farmers can play in it. In addition to identifying opportunities where farmers can get more sustainable, economical, and productive in their operations. I'm here with Liz Hunt the head of sustainable and responsible business at Syngenta, and Chris Cook, head of Enogen at Syngenta Seeds, to help out. Let's get started. This is We're All Ears. Hey there, Liz and Chris. We can't wait to dive into this week's topic. Before we get started, tell us more about your experience in agriculture and what you do in your current roles. Liz, we'll start with you. Thanks for the uh, introduction. So Liz Hunt, I lead our sustainable and responsible business team for Syngenta. Um, I grew up on a small farm in eastern Iowa and have a background in flower breeding, actually, um, and have been working in the sustainability space for several years here at Syngenta. My team and I work across our commercial businesses to look for opportunities to help growers tell their sustainability story, particularly through data and looking at their on-farm data to better look at that through a lens of sustainability. Also work with our portfolio as well um, on how um, our portfolio can contribute to sustainable outcomes. And then also leading our efforts around our good growth plan, which are our commitments to sustainable agriculture. Liz, you have a very interesting job. Thanks for sharing a little bit more about it. And Chris, tell us a little bit more about what you do with Syngenta. Yeah, Kara. So I, you know, I actually head the Enogen business today, and I've done that for about the last two years. And and you'll learn a little bit about Enogen as we get into our conversation. Um, I always think it's interesting. I, all my friends were farmers when I was growing up, and I started out in the grocery business. I always thought I was going to be a grocery store owner, and and got into agriculture because I just wanted to be a farm kid like everybody else. So. I spent the better part of my degree actually as an agronomist and did that and then got into stewardship and stakeholder relations. And so now in the energy business, I feel like have the ability to pull it all together from, from the grocery store all the way to agronomy and how do we actually produce a, you know, a better steak or a better gallon of milk. Thanks, Chris. Let's go ahead and dive into some background information about our topic today. Carbon Market 101 for Farmers. Liz, can you give an overview of carbon emissions trading and what it means practically for farmers? Sure. So agriculture carbon markets are emerging as a mechanism to influence change for on-farm production practices and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There's certain agricultural practices that can also mitigate against some of the impacts of climate change by sequestering more carbon in the soil or reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So to just give kind of an overview of how these work, Um, You kind of have to think of of a a whole system approach here. And it really starts with all companies are generating emissions. It's just part of doing business. Every business is going to generate emissions in one way or another. And they look at that kind of across their entire footprint. So from the inputs of ingredients or manufacturing materials through whatever's happening within their own four walls to getting the product to consumers and consumers using that product. So they go ahead and look across that, and that defines what their emissions footprint is. So some companies are looking to um, achieve net zero emissions or be carbon neutral, and that's being driven by a number of different factors. 
Um, but in order to achieve that, there's certain things that they can do within their production or their manufacturing or their operations. But then they have to look outside of that to find opportunities to um, meet their commitments. And agriculture and forestry practices are seen as one of those potential solutions that can reduce or sequester um, carbon in the soil. Um, so these benefits, you know, with these practices that are adopted, and we hear a lot about no-till or, or cover crops, um, with those practices, we can measure what that carbon reduction or carbon um, sequestration is, and then we can assign a, a value to that. And those are always measured in CO2 equivalents. So, you know, all the greenhouse gases are then broken down into a CO2 equivalent. And then those credits um, are then sold through registries to companies who are seeking to reduce their footprint or have done everything that they can and they can't quite get there on their own. So they need to look for other opportunities. So those, those emitters and then people who can fix the problem, sell it and back to uh, the, the company. So essentially a way for companies to, to stay green in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a company. It's a way for companies to meet their commitments. Um, depending on, you know, what their driving factors are. So as we look across this, so, um, you know, there, there's, an, there's different carbon markets, so not all are created equal. Um, so just really understanding what the different types are out there. And I've tried to kind of break it down into kind of simple ways to understand it, because that, that helps me to better understand kind of how these things are coming together. And there are more regulatory markets. So those would be regulated credit trading. Um, so these carbon credits are traded on a regula regulated asset market. Um, so there's laws in place that say you can emit as a company a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions. If you go over that amount, then you need to bring it down. Um, or if you're under that amount, then you can sell credits to other folks. So it's often referred to as a cap and trade um, type of program. Um, so that is one, one of the regulated programs. And probably the best example of that is the California cap and trade program, which I'm sure quite a few farmers are familiar with um, from ethanol markets. Um, the other way to think about this is more voluntary credit trading. So this is really kind of more similar to um, what I was describing earlier, where companies have voluntarily made commitments to reduce their emissions um, or reach carbon neutral, and they're going to um, acquire credits against that. So they're, they're doing that voluntarily, um, driven by whatever factors um, that, that, that are driving them um, to do that. Um, so that, that's a little bit more of what we're seeing emerge across the um, landscape right now for agriculture is more voluntary uh, credit trading. And then really looking at voluntary funding, and that's really to bring funding um, to the agriculture community to help implement different practices um, on the ground that can help with emissions reductions um, on, on the farm or carbon sequestration. And oftentimes those really are falling within a company's um, supply chain. So for the manufacture of ingredients, um, for example. Liz, how should farmers decide if and which carbon market type to be involved in? So it's gonna be a personal decision for each of the farmers and they'll have to make that for themselves. But you know, there's some fundamental requirements that farmers um, can consider um, as they are looking at the carbon markets and what makes sense for them. Um, so understanding some of the basics, like, you know, what are the practice requirements um, that I would need to adopt? 
if I have adopted practices in the past, do those count? Um, or are there rules in place um, around what's called additionality, which says, hey, you've got to do something new on farm in order to generate a credit? Um, understanding the length of the contract for how long do you need to um, continue a practice or continue providing data? Um, looking at, you know, some of the, the administration, if there's additional uh, fees and such, do you need to do soil sampling? How frequently do you need to do soil sampling? And, you know, just understanding the applicability of those practices to your geography um, and your farm. Well, and if I could build on that a little bit too, Liz, I mean, one of the things you brought up contracts is really important, not only how long might this carbon contract be for? Is it two years or three years or four years or one year, whatever that is? But also, I mean, if you're renting ground, you need to be mindful as well of what the agreement is that you have in place with your with your landlord, because that may have an effect on what you can do, not only just in the length of time, but what you can actually do with those acres as well. Liz, what kind of commitments are agriculture companies making around Absolutely. climate and carbon? You know, I think a lot of agriculture companies um, see that they can uh, play a role in you know, these emissions reductions um, opportunities. Um, and every company is going to look at things a little bit differently um, based on their needs, based on their footprint, based on what they're emitting, and based on what their potential um, is for um, actionable changes. Um, if we take Syngenta, for example, um, Syngenta um, has our good growth plan, which are our commitments to sustainable agriculture. And one of our commitments there is uh, striving for carbon neutral agriculture. So we have made a commitment, for example, to reduce the carbon intensity of our operations by 50% by 2030. Um, so looking for opportunities to um, optimize um, production of the inputs that are going into our products um, over time. What do these company actions essentially mean for consumers? Sure. So some of the, the company's um, actions for consumers, so this can bring, you know, more sustainable products to markets. And that's something that several consumers are looking for um, to better understand the, the sourcing of the products that they're buying or the food that they're eating and having better transparency to how that food is being um, produced. Speaking of identifying opportunities where farmers can be more sustainable, economical, and productive in their operations, Syngenta's corn portfolio includes enogen hybrids, which offer some sustainability advantages in ruminant animals like cattle. Chris, could you share more about the advantages that enogen hybrids offer in terms of conserving carbon, water, electricity, and land use? Yeah, so so enogen is a, a corn hybrid and it was brought forward about 10 years ago and primarily it was used in the biofuel space but we found feed efficiencies when using enogen we found that through university testing at like university of nebraska k-state penn state ohio state and every time we did studies we continued to find about five percent feed efficiency that sounds like a really convenient number but ironically that is in fact the number that it continued to come up with is about 5%. If, if we fed it as silage, it was about 5% as whole corn, dry rolled corn, steam flake corn, whatever we did, it was always about 5%. Where it really gets interesting though, is when you start to think about the implications of 5%. And I had a, an account lead tell me just, just today, said, you know, I was, I was talking to a grower about using energy. And what was interesting is, is they were hauling manure at the time. And I said, what if you could haul 5% less manure? And they're like, amen, I'd love to be able to haul less than that. 
that's part of what we do. Um, when it takes 5% less to feed that animal to get the same product out the other side, um, you can do a lot more, right? So maybe it's 5% less electricity that you need. It's 5% less manure, 5% less water. Water is a big topic for people. Um, 5% less land to create the same crop. All that are things that tie together into what Enogen can really bring into the marketplace. Uh, and we think it's a real advantage. Where we see that advantage really get interesting is a lot of what Liz was talking about, right? There's companies that are looking for offsets. They're saying, hey, you know, we want to do something that brings the better value. We've, we've changed all the light bulbs we can, changed the fleet as much as we can. We need something more. And that's where Enogen can come into play. We did some work around something called a life cycle analysis, and I'm sure Chris, Liz can probably explain it better than I. Yeah, before we get into that, uh, real in-depth, I know life cycle analysis, uh, not everyone listening to the podcast may know what that is. Uh, can Liz or Chris, either of you, jump in and explain a little bit more what this is before we get too much in-depth with the uh, life cycle analysis? I'll probably yeah. let Liz do it because generally it's my kids telling me what I shouldn't do, but we'll let Liz do it. <laughs> Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, yeah, it's one of those uh, kind of geeky sustainability terms, but a life cycle analysis, is it's really a tool for analyzing the environmental impacts and resources used throughout a product's life. Um, so it looks from the raw material extraction um, that goes into producing a product um, all the way through the product's use and end of life or disposal of that product's. Um, and in the agriculture or food space, it's really considered kind of the gold standard for understanding uh, the environmental impacts of a product um, across agriculture. So um, that's a life cycle assessment, well, I mean, life cycle you know, analysis. So if you look at Enogen and you think about the life cycle analysis, which is essentially it's cradle to grave, right? How does Enogen perform from the beginning all the way to the end versus the corn you're using today? And what we see with Enogen, when you look at that 5% feed efficiency, is we see on a thousand head of cattle, we'd save about, you know, about 35 passenger cars off the road annually, about 50 football fields worth of land, nine Olympic swimming pools, 25 homes. But you take that and you expand that out to 100 million cattle in the U.S. Those are really serious numbers. And that's what is, to me, that's what really intrigues some of the you know, down, down the value stream players, when they think about three and a half million cars on a hundred million cattle or 5 million football fields or two and a half million homes. I mean, that's, that's really having a significant impact and it's really exciting. Chris, is there anything else you can share about what's been done across the value chain to enhance sustainability from a carbon perspective? Well, you know, as, as, as I look really back over my days in agronomy and, and, you know, once you're an agronomist, you're always an agronomist. That's just the way it is. You can look at a lot of things that have changed. I think back to when I decided I wanted to be in agriculture when back when we were in the grocery business and I'd go out and work for my friends that, you know, they they sent me in the tractor and I mow board plowed. And you know, that's just not the way we do it today because we found not only are there better ways to, you know, to till the land, but there's better ways to save the soil. There's better ways to be more productive. All those things, you know, that we just thought were a better way to do it were also sustainable as we moved away from pounds of active ingredient to ounces or quarter ounces of acting, active ingredient on a per acre basis. Again, that drives things that are more sustainable. And sustainable is the same as return on investment because it, you know if you're doing the right thing, it's gonna bring more to your bottom line as well. So 
So as I look at the improvement in, in you know, hybrids, hey, here's the new products coming out, they're going to perform better. That drives sustainability. They manage water better. They manage the, you know, the fertility better. All those things help in driving sustainability. What about the livestock industry and all aspects of the value chain? And maybe Liz can add in something here. Yeah. So as I look at, you know, what's happening across the whole value chain, I think there's increased recognition that in order to achieve sustainable outcomes, it's really important to be able to partner. So there's more willingness in the value chain to work more closely uh, with farmers to help with um, resources, um, whether that's technical resources or input resources and such um, to, to, ha- to achieve these outcomes. So nobody can do it alone. Um, and it's really great to see that's being recognized. Chris, do you have anything else to add to that? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's a lot of what Liz was talking about when you think about the value chain. There's there's consumers on the on the end of that that are saying, hey, we, we you know, we want to know where our food comes from. We want to know what was more sustainably produced. And that drives behaviors by everybody in the value chain from from the retailer that's selling it to the processor that's, you know, converting it from, you know, raw milk into pasteurized milk on your shelf or into a steak, whatever it is, to, you know, the feedlot or the dairy and how they're producing it. Everybody along that chain is looking at it saying, we need to do something different. And some, to Liz's point, are making you know statements saying, we're going to be net zero by 2030 or 2040, and, and that's driving behaviors. But everybody through the chain is finding things that they're doing a little bit different and doing a little bit better to help to help deliver on that. What's the approach if farmers are already doing great things? I think one of the questions that I know we get here at the network about these carbon markets are, you know, this seems like it's set up for farmers who are, haven't started to do environmental changes or haven't started to make environmental changes on their farm to incentivize them to start doing that. But what happens to the farmers or what, what's available for the farmers who've been doing this for years? Yeah, so there, there's a, a couple of ways to look at that. One is there are um, different programs and offers out there that are looking back to um, reward those growers who have been leaders in their community by adopting practices and demonstrating that they can be successful in certain geographies. Um, so, so there's certainly those opportunities that exist. And then I would also encourage farmers to look, you know, what is there something else that they could add to their already good practices um, that can help them make them even better than they already are. So just understanding kind of the rules of the road and what's available to you. um, So I think there's certainly a place for everybody um, in this whole conservation space. I think Liz is right. I mean, there's, there's opportunity everywhere you turn with this. It's just Liz makes this comment every day that, you know, the carbon market changes every two hours, is it 30 minutes, something like that. So you know, as we move forward, it, it's going to continue to change in shape, but it's something that's, I think it's here to stay. I think uh, as we move forward, you're going to see water come more and more into play and, and there's real opportunity. So as we wrap up this conversation, what else would you like to share with farmers who are looking to join the carbon market? Uh, Liz, we can start with you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it goes back to some of the, the things that we were talking about at the beginning, but if there's one common denominator across um, carbon markets or as other, you know, Chris just mentioned water, as other ecosystem service markets emerge, it's going to require record keeping. So now is a great time if farmers haven't been keeping robust digital records, now's a really good time to do that. 
and really get your, your data house in order. Um, some of these markets will want to look back, but regardless, um, they'll all be looking for, um, you know, verifiable uh, records. You know, and Chris touched on this, but understanding some of the land rental agreements that you're in and whether they um, enable you to participate or not. Um, know that this is kind of new. Um, there certainly have been agriculture carbon markets um, in the past, um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of more emphasis. And I think there's a lot more folks looking to see how this can work well for agriculture um, this time around. And really, you know, work closely with your agronomist, work closely with your trusted advisor to understand how these practices um, will work for you. Focus on, you know, strong agronomy, focus on, you know, growing and producing the best crop um, that you can and understanding how these practices um, will play into that. Liz, what do you think of cover crops and the implementation of, of something like that? We're seeing a little bit more this year. It seems interest, at least in my area of the country, that uh, Dakotas and Minnesota territory, it seems like after the high winds this year to improve soil conditions, a lot of folks have been out and, and seeding some cover crops. And I wondered, where does that fit into all of this? Yeah, so cover crops are are certainly a space where there's a lot of interest and, you know, they're, they're one of those, one of the, the list of practices that farmers can consider um, to incorporate into their operation. Um, I think it's important to, you know, learn from farmers who have been doing cover crops, you know, work with your local agronomists and resources to understand how they would work for you um, and understand what is the right mix for your geography. Um, Cause everybody's going to be a little bit different. Um, but really, you know, doing what you can to learn. There's a lot of um, good cover crop seed suppliers out there um, who have a lot of great resources that can um, you know, point you to what would work, you know, up in your area, up in North Dakota, where, you know, versus, you know, other places, maybe central Illinois, where it's going to be a completely different game. Are there other practices that you're seeing um, the folks that are signing up for these programs that really have an interest in? Are there some areas of conservation where they're really gravitating towards? Any trends? Yeah, I mean, when you read about these or hear some of the, the headlines around carbon markets and ecosystem service markets, um, it's really looking at you know practices like conservation tillage, um, where there's still plenty of opportunity for that to be adopted kind of across the agriculture landscape. Um, for certain cover crops, there's also looking at, you know, uh, nutrient management as well. And, you know, a lot of folks are already doing variable rate applications, but there's some folks where that's still an opportunity for them. Or even, you know, just giving a good look at your land and understanding, you know, the productivity and their opportunities to transition some of that land to, you know, biodiversity habitats, like pollinator habitats and things like that. So the, the list is certainly longer than cover crops and tillage practices. And that's where I would encourage folks to look to see what works for them. It doesn't have to be everything. It can be just one thing and just start to try, just start somewhere and um, to see what would work for you um, that fits your agronomic system. Chris, what else do you have to add as we wrap things up here today? You know, probably just two thoughts that have both already been shared. I mean, the first one is, you know, sustainability, whether it be carbon markets or water or conservation tillage, you know, it's going to have a positive return on investment for you. The ROI has got to be there and, and, and sustainability drives ROI and ROI drives sustainability and they go hand in hand. 
And, you know, to Liz's point, which is my second one is, and she says it all the time, it's just one thing, right? You don't need to dump the whole bucket and start over. What you need to look at is, is there one thing I can do on my operation that I can tweak a little bit? Maybe it's the way you're doing tillage, or maybe it's, you know, whatever the, the products that I'm using on the farm, it only takes one thing and try that. And, and it may not work the first time, try something different, but it just takes one little thing. And once you find the right niche, then, you know, maybe, maybe a year from now or two years from now, try one more thing. Um, but it needs to drive ROI and, and you know what, it'll, it'll be a benefit for you and, and really long-term for your whole operation as well. Chris and Liz, thank you so much for sharing your insight on the role agriculture plays in the carbon market. This is Golden Harvest. We're all ears. And the next episode is our final for the year. Join us next week as we wrap up by reviewing this year's harvest and answering some audience submitted questions as we look ahead to next season. Subscribe to We're All Ears on your preferred podcast streaming platform so you won't miss it. We're on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. And and remember, just like you're listening, we're listening too. So join the conversation and interact with us at Golden Harvest on Facebook and Twitter or at Golden Harvest Seeds on Instagram and tell us what you think of this mini series. Thanks for listening to We're All Ears. We'll catch you next week in our final episode.